Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Welcome to Back From The Borderline, the podcast that helps anyone who identifies with the symptoms of BPD overcome their biggest obstacle themselves. I'm your host, Molly, and I'm here to help you realize that anyone, including you, can come back from the borderline. Today is a very special bonus episode of the podcast in partnership with the National Education Alliance for Borderline Personality Disorder, also known as NEA-BPD. Founded in 2001, NEA-BPD's mission is to provide education, raise public awareness and understanding, decrease stigma, promote research, and enhance the quality of life for people who identify with BPD and related problems, including emotion dysregulation. NEA BPD has accomplished some pretty incredible things. They've gained recognition and awards from the American Psychiatric Association. They have established numerous professional education courses on BPD. They even gained congressional endorsement of BPD Awareness Month. This is just a few of the incredible things this organization has been able to accomplish. NEABPD has also created an international Family Connections program. Family Connections is a free, evidence-based, 12-class course that provides education, skills, training, and support for people who identify with symptoms and traits of borderline personality disorder or emotion dysregulation. Family Connections is based on research funded by the National Institute of Mental Health. Survey data from previous courses has shown that after completing the course, family members and loved ones experienced decreased feelings of depression, burden and grief, and more feelings of empowerment. It's been a great pleasure to work more closely in the last couple of months with NEA BPD, and part of my partnership with them is to create this episode for you, my current listeners, as well as for individuals who are on the wait list for the Family Connections program. Today, we have a returning guest to the podcast, Katherine Humanuk. She is a licensed clinical social worker, and she also volunteers with NEABPD as a leader in their Family Connections program. In today's episode, Katherine and I will be dispelling some common BPD myths and diving into some facts and figures that are really helpful for anyone supporting someone who identifies with the traits of BPD. To my new listeners, welcome. Existing listeners, welcome back. Let's dive into my chat with Catherine. My name is Catherine Humanuk. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I work mostly with people with BPD, complex trauma, and addiction. And I also volunteer with NEA BPD as a leader in their Family Connections program. Can you tell us a little bit about Family Connections and your role within the program? Family Connections is a program for loved ones of people with BPD to learn more about the disorder and more about how to adopt healthy communication patterns and healthy problem-solving patterns so that they can assist their loved ones and experience an improved quality of life for themselves. There's a pretty long wait list for this program, so it seems like there's a lot of interest. Can you tell me a little bit about the types of things you cover in the sessions on Family Connections? Family Connections has six modules. We start off by giving some education about what borderline personality disorder is. Where does it come from? Why do people have it? What makes it better? What makes it worse? And we also focus a lot on the rights of relatives. Just because you love somebody with BPD doesn't mean that you have to burn yourself out trying to be their personal support person. 
So we provide some education about what BPD is, and we also help people to establish some limits on their own behavior so that they don't burn themselves out. After we give that education about BPD, we talk a lot about validation, which is one of the communication strategies that is the most impactful for talking with somebody with BPD. And then we also talk about problem solving, because if you know or love somebody with BPD, you probably know that problem solving can be a little bit difficult or a little bit impaired when people are emotionally dysregulated. So we give strategies so that family members and loved ones can support their person with BPD through the problem-solving process instead of problem-solving for them or leaving them out to dry. I think it's fantastic that there is a focus on validation because I feel like no matter who you are, learning how to properly listen and validate the emotions of the people around us is probably one of the most useful skills. And as someone who's not a licensed clinician myself, but identifies with the traits of BPD and spent a vast majority of my life in a very chaotic state because of those symptoms, I learned validation has helped me become so much more effective. I always say the best mantra for people who identify with BPD is learning to put some space between their big feelings and their reactions. And validation is that next step. But to be able to even think to validate, you have to have that space. If you're a family member or a partner or somebody with BPD, validation feels counterintuitive at first. Because let's be honest, BPD symptoms can be really scary and they can be life or death. And the idea of telling somebody who's behaving in a way that's putting their health and safety at risk, the idea of validating them feels like enabling. I get that. And at the same time, when you approach somebody and say, what you're doing is wrong and you need to change, doesn't matter if they have BPD or not. I've never met somebody who appreciates that feedback. You have to deliver it in a way that says, I know you wouldn't be doing this if you had better options. And then once you say that, you can give the better option. But if you just come in with, don't do that, do this instead, it always feels like an attack to anybody. No, like no mental health disorder needed, but to somebody with BPD who experiences such intense shame and has Mm -hmm. so much trouble regulating their own emotions, it just feels like criticism and it's going to make them dig their heels in and want to do it more. I think it was Marsha Linehan who said that people who identify with BPD or who are predisposed to those symptoms, they're like emotional burn victims. So when someone has a third degree burn, even just a feather dragging across that burn feels like debilitating pain. Validation, it's like a burn ointment to be able to just be saying, I hear you. Validation is not approval of a behavior. Mm -hmm. It's, Mm -hmm. I hear that you're suffering. And I can imagine if I were in your shoes, maybe I would feel the same way. But how can we create a path forward? I want to get into the meat of our conversation today. It's really important for us to talk about myths versus facts and doing a lot of myth busting when it comes to something like BPD, because each and every person that's going to be listening to this podcast is someone who cares about someone very deeply and wants to help them. And the first thing that happens when you type borderline personality disorder in the Google search bar, it can come up with some really scary stuff. It's hard to sift through what's real and what's not. And not only that, research is changing so much all the time. So even if you found a blog post that was reflective of the most up-to-date research from 2011, We're in a very different place now in 2022. If you really care about someone who struggles with emotion regulation, BPD, then trying to keep up to date with the most recent research and trying to do your best to find out who wrote it and making sure that they have enough credentialed experience behind them is super important. Mm -hmm. Do you have any reactions to that, Catherine, before we dive into the myths? Yes. Um, so many reactions. (laughs) I will say one, one thing that is really, really new in new in terms of academia. So I think it's three or four years old now, 
but there were two different longitudinal studies done of people with BPD that were, I think they were both roughly 25 years long. So they just had their, they just finished and synthesized their results and, and did all the analysis and did the publishing of all that. Until those two studies came out just a couple of years ago, we didn't have long-term studies on people with BPD. We had short-term studies that were tied to really specific circumstances, like people who did this IOP program for a year, what are they like two years later? We didn't have what are the overall recovery rates for a huge group of people that have BPD. And we have that now. And what we know now is that the results are positive. It's not sunshine and rainbows. It's not just wait it out and everything's going to get better. But we do know that recovery is absolutely possible and it's not rare. It's very common. It's hard work, but it's common. And so a lot of people, especially if, you know, I mean, psychological research is hard for me to read and it's, it's part of what I do for a living. So if you don't have any exposure to that and you're just going into Google and you're reading whatever generic mental health information.com, that's not likely to be reflective of the most up-to-date research. So a lot of times people will tell me, I just read this thing in psychology today and it was published five years ago and it's no longer accurate. It's overwhelming. I get it. Doing the research on yourself is a lot of work. And how do you wade through all that information and how do you know what's correct and what's not? So that's hopefully what we can do with this episode is that we can shed some light on the facts that are research-based so that people are starting from a place of accurate information and then going forward from there. And I also think it's interesting to shine a light on the fact that some of the stats that we'll be quoting here, they're just statistics from a certain control group. Mm -hmm. Statistics do not dictate every single human being out there. Human beings are all so very different. Even now, our understanding of the human personality and how that changes through time and how it can be defined as ordered or disordered, it's in flux all the time. What we can learn from a lot of this information is how we can cope with some of these symptoms better. And as someone who would probably have been labeled extremely disordered when I was a young teenager. I would consider that there's no way I would meet the BPD criteria now sitting here at 33. But just six or seven years ago, my life was chaotic. I was unable to hold down a job. And through hard work and through learning, I now am able to be grown as a person. It's so easy when we're looking through the medical model of mental illness to see these terms like when will my child or my friend or my son or daughter or brother or sister be cured? That's medical language. There really is no such thing as being cured. It's just a matter of growth skills and resilience. And that's all very possible. Absolutely. And to double down on what you just said, we measure recovery in a lot of different ways. The most common way that we measure recovery in academia is if somebody no longer meets criteria for the diagnosis. There are nine symptoms. You have to have five to meet criteria. That means if somebody meets four, they don't have the diagnosis anymore. It also means if somebody has zero, they don't meet the diagnosis. And it means people who have five and people who have nine have the same diagnosis. And there's no indicator of severity unless you actually get to know that person. That research is starting with people who have somewhere between five to nine And the people they're marking as recovered are people who have somewhere between four and zero. So somebody who goes from nine to zero has a very different story to tell than somebody who goes from five to four. That's a really interesting distinction. That's one way to measure recovery. But another way to measure recovery is, do you have something fulfilling to do with your time? Do you have meaningful relationships with people you love? If you have that, but you have persistent symptoms, is your life still very much worth living? Absolutely. People get to define their own recovery. Some people might define it as holding down a job for a year. Some people might define it as reestablishing lost relationships. Some people might define it as sobriety, whatever people might define their recovery as. We don't study that. 
in the Mm -hmm. same way that we study how many symptoms do you have out of this list of nine. So for those of you who are worried about your person with BPD, I wouldn't get super hung up on whether they meet criteria or don't meet criteria. I would really focus on helping them to build a life worth living and helping them define what that looks like for themselves rather than our expectations. That is just so beautifully put. Everyone's definition of happiness is going to be different. And anyone who is forced to live within the prescribed vision of someone else's definition of happiness is likely to be experiencing life as pretty difficult and meaningless for them. It's so important to help the people that we love and also trust that with the right skills and the right support that people will find their own way. It's so hard to not overhelp or over push because sometimes I think even myself as someone who likes to give unsolicited advice, overhelping can be the most damaging thing for someone that we love in terms of trying to find what their meaning is. Shall we get into these myths? Let's go. We are reading this PowerPoint presentation provided to us by Abby at NEA BPD. And the first myth that is in front of me is, is BPD more common in men or women? I'll let you listeners just ponder that. I feel like a game show host right now. And obviously this question doesn't even take into consideration all the different genders on the spectrum. The answer that we have from NEABPD is although nearly 75% of people diagnosed with BPD are women, research shows that BPD is equally represented in men and women. And I would say across the gender spectrum, I'm adding that men are commonly misdiagnosed with substance problems, PTSD, and other problems related to emotion dysregulation. We know that most people who are diagnosed with BPD identify as female. When we do studies of the whole population and we ask questions about all kinds of stuff and the questions happen to include questions about personality traits, Mm. we find that men absolutely have BPD at the same rates as women. But what's happening is when you see a 19, 20-year-old girl who is distraught about a breakup and is throwing things or hitting their partner, society says that girl's crazy. So we look for a mental health diagnosis. If a man were to react the same way in the same situation, he'd get arrested and he's not going to get a diagnosis of BPD when he's in jail. He might get a diagnosis of something these days he might be diagnosed with BPD, but he's a lot more likely to get lost in the justice system or to just be totally overlooked as, well, yeah, sometimes men have to punch walls when they get angry. That's just how men handle their feelings because society makes violence a little bit more acceptable from men as long as it happens in certain situations and circumstances. Mm. Not that violence is the only factor of BPD or that everybody with BPD is violent, but for men, it often their dysregulation, their impulsive behaviors often shows up like that and it gets them in trouble or it gets overlooked. Whereas if a woman were to do it, it would be, she's crazy. It's fascinating because you've got the female stereotype of crazy and the male stereotype of criminal, but at the core of each of those is someone who's likely hurting very much Mm -hmm. inside. So the next myth that we have is myth or fact I can just take a pill and my BPD will be cured. I feel like I'm going to edit in the Jeopardy music. So people can decide. Everyone, do you think this is a myth or fact? I mean, now here's the answer. Myth. The FDA has not approved any drug or medication to treat BPD. Catherine, thoughts? What we do know is that a lot of people with BPD have co-occurring disorders, meaning they don't just have BPD. They have BPD and depression or BPD and anxiety or BPD and an eating disorder. BPD is a challenging disorder to live with, but if you have BPD and you're depressed and you can't get out of bed, you can't go to your treatment. So if you medicate the depression and now you can get out of bed and go to treatment, then 
now you can also work on treating your BPD. I am not a medical professional and I'm strictly speaking from lived experience and I am different and what works for me will not necessarily work for others. But what I did find is that while the six different psychiatric medications that I found myself on over a six year period is that they did help the intensity of my feelings and emotions, but what they didn't accomplish and what I needed therapy for and what I needed to actually take the initiative for was looking within myself, having the courage to change some of these destructive patterns and also learn how to, as I said before, put some space between my feelings and my reactions. And medication can't do that for you. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's really important to just not see pills as cure. It's coping, just like a DBT skill is helping us cope. But in order to change your behaviors, I truly believe you have to change your beliefs. When I talk about medication with clients, and I want to clarify, I'm not a psychiatrist. I do not prescribe medication. So I encourage all my clients to take their medication as prescribed. The way that I frame it is think of your symptoms like rocks. And unfortunately, you have to take them everywhere you go. If you drop one, you have to stop and pick it up before you can move. If you want to leave the room, you have to free up a hand to open the door. So you're carrying all these rocks, you're carrying all these traumas, you're carrying all these maladaptive behaviors, you're carrying all these memories. Medication is a backpack. You still have to carry all your rocks. It's still heavy. It's still a pain in the butt. But you have your hands free to do the things you need to do in your day-to-day life. So our next myth versus fact. What is the prevalence of BPD in the United States? A, 1 million people. B, 5 million people. C, 25 million people. The answer is B, 5 million people. Do you know much about this statistic, Catherine, or how it's calculated? So there, there's kind of a range And depending on the study you look at, it's somewhere between 1% at the low end, 6% at the high end, I think, when study found. Um, That 5 million number, I don't know the exact study that that one ties to. But typically what we find is, I mentioned earlier, when we study the whole population and we just ask them a whole bunch of questions, and some of those questions happen to be about BPD, we find a lot of people who appear to have BPD symptoms, maybe it's subclinical, maybe they don't have access to treatment, maybe they're not interested in treatment. Um, But those studies tend to give us slightly higher numbers. We get uh, when we're looking at people who are diagnosed with, you know, the five out of nine or more, then we tend to get in the roughly 2% range, which is where that 5 million comes from. So people with BPD tend to, A, are emotionally sensitive. B, have intense emotional reactions and react quickly. C, see things in extremes when dysregulated. Or D, all of the above. Catherine, do you want to do your best guess at answering this? I am pretty sure here the answer is D. So folks with BPD, depending on what theory you subscribe to, you might say that they're born with a biological predisposition to feel their emotions more intensely, like on a physiological basis. If your heart rate elevates when you get angry, somebody with BPD might have a more intense or a higher escalation, something like that. There's also the idea of temperament. So somebody might just born with a tendency to have bigger feelings. For folks with BPD, it's not just that their feelings are bigger, it's that they're more reactive. So it takes less to create a big emotion in a person with BPD compared to somebody who doesn't have BPD, but who does still have big emotions. And then when we talk about seeing things in extreme when dysregulated, I want to clarify, that's a human problem. All of us have had a day where we're running late and we spilled our coffee and we can't find our keys and the dog pooped in the shoe and everything is horrible. And then your phone rings and you just want to scream. And as an outsider looking in, I would say, okay, so change your shirt, get a new cup of coffee. Where was the last place you saw your keys and put on some different shoes? Very easy for me because I'm not the one living in that moment. All humans, when they're emotionally overwhelmed, lose access to their problem-solving skills. 
what makes BPD so much more difficult is that they're emotionally overwhelmed so much more often. And the people around them don't understand why the situation is overwhelming to them. I don't have a dog that would poop in a shoe, but I absolutely have a cat that would poop in a shoe. (laughs) It goes back to validation too in these moments. And not only that, think about you as a person, regardless of whether or not you identify with BPD. And I'm assuming if you're a family member that is joining this program, maybe you don't specifically identify with it yourself, but think about all the times where you could have given a friend really good advice, but you couldn't take the same advice yourself. Right? Mm-hmm. It's so easy for us to think, well, I would have done that differently. And now I just visited home a couple of months back and I went into my memory box and in that box, I saved some old AOL instant messenger conversations that I had with friends. I looked at the conversations that little 12 to 15-year-old Molly had and they were drama. I had to print these conversations out right, and take them to the principal because it became a whole drama at our school that these girls were bullying me. And I will say I got really intensely bullied. But when I looked back at the way I was talking on these chats, I was so emotionally dysregulated. I was seeing things in such black and white terms. And I was so desperately wanting these girls to like me. And they saw me as a really easy target because I think they knew that I wanted to be liked so bad. But not only that, I had probably talked behind someone's back and I got caught. And so again, it was just classic middle school girl antics. But at the time, I remember wanting to die when I would wake up to go to school in the morning. You know that feeling when you wake up and then you remember something horrible that happened and you're like, oh my God, now I have to go do that. You wake up with a clean, fresh childhood brain and then the wave of realization washes over you. I share this story because looking back now, I read those messages and I was like, it's not a big deal. There's life after junior high. And I remember my mom saying some of these things to me at the time and it made me so angry. Because she just said, when you get older, junior high girls, they're not going to matter. And now looking back, I get how some parents that have a child that's struggling, it's so easy to forget how painful, how real, and how forever those feelings feel when you Mm -hmm. are an adolescent. I hated that I had to see those messages, but I know that I'm going to keep them now for when I have a teenager one day because I feel like it's going to help me remember. I'm not yet a parent, but I'm hoping that I can always remember how painful it was to be Mm -hmm. a teenager and how forever those feelings felt. Oh yeah. And I I think our brains are synced because Mm. I was having a parallel memory of my own adolescence and I really found myself wanting to say like to the parents out there who are looking at their teenagers and they just cannot comprehend, I get it. I also had a really rough experience in middle school and high school. I'm of exactly the age that Instant Messenger came out when I was in middle school. I wish you could see Molly's face right now. Yeah. You and I are the same age, I think. And we grew up in what I call the wild west of the oh, internet. It was a rough time. And and I, again, was being bullied online. And I remember my mom saying to me, then just stop going online. Duh. And as an adult, I'm like, oh yeah, of course. As an adult, when people are sending me hate messages on my professional Instagram, I just turn off my DMs for a while. It is that simple. I can see that as somebody who has learned to regulate my emotions, who is not living in the thick of adolescence, plus additional stuff going on that was making those emotions more intense. But I also remember feeling like the world was over and it's hard. There are kids out there and a lot of parents who have more than one kid and only one kid has BPD will share this experience. There are kids out there who, when they're getting bullied or they're having a rough time at school and the parent says, Hey, look, I get that this is a big deal, but it's not actually a big deal. I promise this will be over soon and these people will be nothing but a memory. There are kids who find hope in that. There are. There are kids who find a lot of reassurance in that. So parents not doing anything wrong. No, but I think it has to be followed or it has to be first 
I am so sorry you're feeling like this. That must be so painful. And then going to the, then one day you're going to forget them, right? Parents like mine miss that step. And I've had a lot of healing with my mom and dad, and I'm really lucky to be in a good place with them at this point. But my mom had the very best intentions, but she skipped the validation step. And that's why that validation for folks with BPD is so important because if you say first, I hear how big this is for you right now and you must be suffering, then they can be receptive to what comes next. But if you come in with your reaction is too big, it feels like more criticism. So it's not that the parent is doing anything wrong and not every kid needs as much validation as a kid with BPD. And also, if you're listening to this, you're probably on the wait list for family connection. So you probably want to change up some kind of pattern in your communication. That's a great place to start. When you're offering your wise advice that you've earned with time, add in a sentence or two of that validation first of, yeah, yeah this feels big and horrible. And also asking, what do you need right now? For me, I'm a very touchy person. I was raised by a very logical-minded parent unit. If my mom just would have said to me, that must be so horrible and gave me a huge hug and suffered with me in that moment for a minute, that would have been everything to me. So the next one is, when do problems associated with BPD typically show up? A, toddler, B, in adolescence or the teenage years, C, the mid-40s, or D, in the senior years? Catherine, do you want to hit us with the answer to this one? It is the teenage years. I will say that that's when the specific symptoms of BPD tend to become most apparent is in the teenage years. And also when we do retrospective studies, meaning we talk in the present to people who are diagnosed now, but we ask them about the past before they were diagnosed, there are usually some really clear warning signs. The parents will say that the kid couldn't be soothed. They would never sleep. They would have way more tantrums and meltdowns than their siblings would. Um, you know, they were overly perfectionistic or really hard on themselves in ways that other kids their age just didn't seem to be. Babies don't have BPD. You're not born with BPD. But we do see often when we look back that people who end up with BPD in their teenager, young adult years did have a lot of pretty clear warning signs. It's just that you may not have known it was a warning sign for BPD. I feel like viewing the development of my mental health symptomology was easier for me to understand when I took a 40,000 foot view Mm -hmm. and saw it from a perspective of adaptation. A lot of my symptoms developed as an adolescent, as an adaptation to survive my environment. I adapted to a pretty emotionally volatile environment growing up where I didn't know what to expect. And so when I look back at my symptoms, they were adaptive at the time. And then as I got older, I realized that as I mixed with people that were outside of my family system, these behaviors and coping mechanisms no longer served me. All of you listening, regardless of whether or not you identify with BPD, All of us have some kind of mental health thing we struggle with, every single one of us. If you have anxiety, if you have depression, or your teenager, your friend, whoever you're coming here to these programs to support, it's easier to look at it instead of something that's bad, a bad thing that they're doing that's wrong or right. It likely was adaptive for them. It was probably developed to adapt and better survive their environment. Absolutely. And I I have a little saying for that, and I just say... It worked until it didn't work. BPD symptoms often result in impulsive actions, difficulties in relationships with other people, or both impulsive actions and difficulties in relationships with other people. I'll just throw out the answer. It's both. It's both. <laughs> so Catherine, do you want to talk a little bit about your experience as a clinician as it relates to impulsivity and how impulsivity can actually destroy relationships with other people for those of us who identify with BPD. Yeah, absolutely. So 
the first thing that I want to say is whether you're looking at impulsive behavior as a contributor to relationship difficulties or on its own, impulsive behavior is the way that people manage unmanageable emotions. Going back to that example of you're running late, you spilled your coffee, your shoes dirty, all of that. I don't know a lot of people who've never snapped under pressure. I don't know a lot of people who've never yelled, who've never had one too many, you know, whatever it might be. People make unwise, ineffective choices (laughs) when they're emotionally overwhelmed. Mm. And for people with BPD, they're emotionally overwhelmed much more often than the average person. And impulsive behaviors regulate that emotion down by either distracting or numbing or whatever it might be. Self-harm releases endorphins. It's not a good idea. I don't condone it, but it makes perfect sense why somebody would do that impulsively when they're in a bout of uncontrollable rage or despair. It's back to the adaptation thing. It's an adaptive response. It may not be what we see as good or bad, but it's not about good or bad. It's what the person in the moment is doing that has worked for them. Exactly. So whether it's binge eating, spending all your money, driving too fast, whatever it is, impulsive behavior downregulates that emotion. It makes Mm -hmm. that emotion less intense. The way that that contributes to the relationships with other people is other people simply don't get that because they don't need to act that way to regulate their emotions. I remember once when I was first dating my husband, he was really annoyed about something, but there was nothing he could do. And I watched him take a deep breath and his whole facial expression changed. And I said, what just happened? And he said, well, I realized that being angry isn't going to get me anywhere and I don't want to be angry. So he decided not to be angry anymore. No, I'm a therapist. I can't do that. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. He's a very impressive guy. That's not something that most of us can do, but that's the far other end of the spectrum. Is And it's a skill you can develop. Though. It is a skill you can develop. So when somebody who manages their emotions by taking a deep breath or calling their friend to vent or going to bed early or taking a nap, when somebody who regulates their emotions that way is in relationship, whether it's parent-child or spouse or friend or whatever it is, with somebody who regulates their emotions with impulsive behaviors, it doesn't make sense. When people who don't understand impulsive behavior are exposed to that impulsive behavior that's part of BPD, they react really strongly. They either want to fix it for them because they never want to see their loved one suffer again. That's a completely understandable reaction and it's not going to help. Or they need to take some space. That's a completely understandable reaction and it's going to trigger fear of abandonment and it's going to make it worse. Or they want to explain to the person, hey, what you're doing is just not appropriate. Please stop. That's a completely understandable reaction and it's not going to help. And so you find this self-perpetuating cycle where the person with BPD engages in impulsive behavior The person without BPD doesn't understand and gives some kind of feedback or response that communicates how unhappy they are with that. And the person with BPD takes that on and internalizes that because people with BPD are not stupid. When they're in the height of emotional dysregulation, they make ineffective choices. When they're emotionally regulated, they have just as many cognitive abilities as anybody else. There's a commercial for Snickers and they say, you're not yourself when you're hungry. It reminds me also of my therapist, Bev, who is the first DBT therapist that I worked with. And she told me to assess my vulnerabilities. Am I hungry? Have I taken a walk outside? Have I gotten sun? Have I had a nutritious meal and not just my coffee for the morning? And Mm -hmm. am I hormonal? Have I had enough sleep? Being a good parent to myself and assessing my vulnerabilities has helped me so much with my effectiveness and relationships as Mm -hmm. someone with lived experience because I know that I need to take a deep breath and put some space between my emotions and reactions. But even now, and I consider myself to be pretty far along in my recovery journey, if I haven't had sleep, food, and all of these different vulnerabilities, I can be a pretty miserable person to be around. Mm-hmm. And, and I think everyone that listens to this podcast 
can probably relate to that too, to mm-hmm. some capacity. You may not be able to relate to the extreme end of the reactivity that someone who identifies with PPD displays, but mm-hmm. it's difficult to be effective in your life when you can't create the space between your feeling and the reaction. Just like you said, you have this big, intense behavior. People respond to it negatively. When you come down from that, when you're back at your baseline and you realize what you did and that it hurt the people around you, or maybe you can't even realize that you hurt them, but you see them pulling away. What people with BPD tend to do is say, my friend is pulling away because I'm a bad person and they finally figured it out. I call it the shame or the cringe spiral, you know, like Mm -hmm. that's another myth that people with BPD are intentionally evil and manipulative and rageful. Whereas my experience is these snap decisions of extreme reactivity that I will beat myself up internally about for days on end and Mm -hmm. feel so deeply shameful and regretful about watching the reaction of the person I love's eyes when when I do something like that just stabs me to the core, even if I'm not showing it on the outside. I feel like that's a big misunderstanding that's out there about people who identify with BPD too. And if you love someone with BPD, it's very likely that you've seen the deep regret after those times, but it doesn't excuse any kind of abusive or destructive behavior. It's a window into that painful experience and it's painful for everyone. Yeah. And what happens is it it just perpetuates. If you're stuck in a shame spiral, you will quickly become dysregulated again, maybe in minutes, maybe in days. Mm. But if you don't have the skills to get yourself out of the shame spiral and you believe that you're being rejected because of who you are at your core instead of behaviors that you can modify, you are likely to have to regulate that shame yeah. by behaving impulsively to distract yourself or to minimize the intensity of it. So it it goes and goes and then, okay, you act impulsively again and, and your loved ones say, what, how could you have just done that again? I thought we just went over this. I thought you felt really bad about it. And it goes over and over and over and it damages that relationship. And neither party there is intending to hurt the other party. Mm. All right, Catherine, our last myth or fact that we are going to tackle is myth or fact, all people with BPD act the same. That is absolutely a myth. I, we, we've been talking throughout about there's nine symptoms and you need five of them to qualify for a diagnosis. When you actually do the math and I had seen this stat around. And so I actually went and learned how to do the math and double checked it. Catherine is always doing her homework. I love homework. There are 256 combinations of symptoms that meet criteria for BPD. And within those 256 combinations of symptoms, they're going to ebb and flow for everybody based on the situation they're in, based on where they are in their life, their age, the coping skills they've been exposed to, the treatments they have, the way their relationships are going. Symptoms can come and go. And you might have two people who both meet criteria for the diagnosis, but they both have five symptoms and they only share one. You might have somebody whose symptoms are impulsive behavior, splitting in relationships, suicidal ideation. And then you have somebody else whose symptoms are chronic emptiness, feelings of dissociation, lack of self. I think this trips people up a lot because they'll read about BPD And sometimes it'll really match the person that they have in their mind or their own personal experience. So no, not all people with BPD are the same. And even one person with BPD can have more or fewer symptoms that are more or less intense throughout their lifetime. The last question we have is how can you support someone with BPD? I know everyone that's tuning into this episode from the Family Connections waitlist is desperately trying to figure out how they can support their loved one. We can't tell you exactly what to do or what will help your particular situation, but I'm hoping that listening to Catherine and my perspective as someone with lived experience, Catherine as a clinician who has so much experience working with people with diagnoses of BPD and BPD traits, 
is seeing the person that you love as an individual human being. And these behaviors that might be contributing to a lot of chaos in your family system as adaptations and that there is hope when you can learn skills and there can be a deepening of understanding with one another. Catherine, do you have any other reflections on how people can support the person that they love while they're on this wait list? Like you said, everybody is going to be different. Know that they didn't wake up in the morning and choose this. When you are in the heat of the moment and you're just bewildered about why your loved one with BPD is acting the way they are, try to remember, even though in the moment it's not making sense, they're not choosing that on purpose because they have better options and they don't want them right it's a it's a lack of skill it's behavior patterns that need to be broken but that have evolved over years so really looking at your loved one with bpd in a non-judgmental way and knowing that they're not doing it to you and it's not about you that will help you to stay so much more level headed and will allow you to access that validation and that care and that empathy for them if you're able to remember that then there's some other Stuff that might sound kind of basic, but is a really big deal and it can kind of get lost in the chaos. Remember to show your loved one that you appreciate them. When you see their good qualities shining, call them out. Tell them that you see how hard they're working. Tell them that you see the progress they're making, even if it's little. I think sometimes we get stuck because we think about the progress we would make in a similar situation and our loved one isn't making that progress as fast as we would. So it's hard to recognize, but call it out when you see it, validate it, tell them how important they are to you. All of those things that may be taken for granted or maybe lost in the chaos are so important to say out loud. Be prepared for your person with BPD to give you some mixed messages. They'll feel really intensely positive and then really intensely negative. And until they have more skills to manage that on their own, you may be on the receiving end of those mixed messages. So again, remembering that it's not about you. It's not directed at you on purpose. In fact, what we know is that a lot of folks with BPD, their interpersonal symptoms only come out in their most close relationships. So with parents or with romantic partners, it may feel as that person who's on the receiving end as though it's directed at you. And it makes sense that it feels that way but it's actually because you're the only safe person that they trust to see the whole spectrum of their emotion. Encourage them to go to treatment and try to understand what treatment options there are. I think sometimes people get into trouble because they think, I just need to get them into therapy. Well, BPD affects a really small portion of the population and it requires specialized treatment that we don't use for a lot of other diagnoses. So getting into therapy is not the goal. Getting into the appropriate evidence-based therapy is the goal. And there are some resources that you're going to link to, I think, on the NEABPD website that show you how to find an appropriate evidence-based therapy program for your person. There are a couple different places that keep lists of therapists. The first one is behavioral tech. The lady who invented dialectical behavior therapy also founded a program that certifies providers who give that therapy. So you can go to their website and you can put in your zip code and it will tell you everybody that they've certified in that area. You can also contact the New York Presbyterian BPD Resource Center. You don't have to be in New York. They keep a nationwide list of providers. There are definitely providers and agencies that offer DBT that are maybe not listed there. So when you're searching for a provider, if you see somebody who says that they provide DBT, ask them, where did they get their training? What is the way that they deliver DBT? There's also other therapies like mentalization-based treatment, which is a little less common in the U.S., but is also evidence-based for treating borderline personality disorder. So it's not just encouraging treatment for the sake of treatment. 
it's encouraging treatment of the evidence-based variety so that you're setting your loved one up for success. Whether your loved one is in treatment or not, be aware that treatment is really, really hard work for somebody with BPD. So getting into treatment is the beginning. And if you can keep that in mind and be supportive throughout that process, throughout that nonlinear recovery process, that's going to really help your loved one to succeed. Thank you, Catherine, so much for being here with me today. And welcome to any new listeners from the Family Connection Support Group. Catherine, where can my existing listeners and those tuning in from the Family Connections program find you? And what are you working on next? They can find me on Instagram at Catherine LCSW. And I will link to Catherine's Instagram. I will say, because I know Catherine isn't going to want to toot her own horn too much. Her Instagram content is absolutely fantastic. She's one of the very few mental health Instagrams that cites her resources and almost every single one of her posts. And it's full of lots of amazing content. So I would highly recommend following her in the description of this podcast episode. You will find other helpful resource links and links to all of the things Catherine and I mentioned here in this episode as well. And if you're new tuning in and you would like to join the waitlist for the Family Connections program, that link will be provided to you too. So Mm -hmm. thank you so much, Catherine. Do you have anything else you'd like to add before we leave our listeners today? I do. I want to shout out the NEABPD website because they have so many videos available for free. They've recorded a lot of webinars for people to learn validation skills and mindfulness skills. So if you are looking to learn more about BPD or about managing emotions or validation or the cycle of invalidation or whatever it might be, there's a video about it on NEABPD. I will link to all of that. Catherine, thank you for all of your work. Thank you for offering your time to these programs because I know it's something that you do out of the goodness of your heart because you care about people with BPD and their families. So your work is deeply appreciated by me and I'm sure everyone that's listening. Thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast again today. You are too kind. Thank you so much for having me. Bye, Catherine. Thank you so much for being here with me today for this special partnership episode with NEABPD's Family Connections Program. All the resources we discussed in today's episode will be linked in the episode description, so don't forget to check those out. If you are a new listener of the podcast just finding me today, I recommend you check out my other episodes where I have interviewed other licensed professionals. You will find a lot of value in that content as well. On my website, backfromtheborderline.com, you can also download my free BPD recovery book list. I also drop new episodes of the podcast every Tuesday morning, so to make sure you never miss a new episode, you can look up Back from the Borderline on your favorite podcast app of choice and follow the show. Sending all of you listeners big hugs out there. I hope you have an amazing rest of your day, and I will see you again on the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.